For our time then, can we return to Genesis chapter 3? I'm not going to highlight or isolate one text. Instead, I want to take a broad brush approach and we shall consider the whole of the chapter. I put it to you at the very beginning in my introduction that Genesis chapter 3 tells us of the fall of man and gives us the only credible explanation for the state of the world that we live in. Now that's a very dogmatic statement because others would disagree with it, but this will be our take upon this chapter here. As we look at the world today, or indeed the world in previous times, we can only understand the happenings in the world when we have a right grasp and a right understanding of Genesis chapter 3. To my mind, there are at least two things that a minister must always have before his mind. And he must never forget these basic things. What are they? Well, he must, first of all, understand that when he preaches before a congregation, and it doesn't matter what the congregation is, but when he preaches, he's not to assume that all his hearers, although they may be regular and diligent at the means of grace, that they are, in fact, Christians. Secondly, he must also assume that very few actually retain positively the things that are said in a sermon. And very often, because he knows his own frailties and he knows what it's like himself, people don't always retain even the basics of Christianity. And therefore, the, he must assume that there is ignorance even in congregations where the persons are somewhat regular and diligent. 
It is with that in mind that we approach Genesis chapter 3. Here we are, friends, really at the very ABCs of Christianity. If we don't have some kind of orthodox understanding of this chapter, we'll never understand Christianity. We'll never understand the message of the Bible. And this would obviously lead us to the clear implication we will never value the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we might put it negatively. We will never understand our plight, our position by nature, unless we have a clear biblical understanding of what we find in Genesis chapter 3. There are one or two things I wish to highlight from this chapter. We could highlight many things. There is an awful lot in this chapter. And this would remind us again that we are dealing with the Word of God. And God can say very much so concisely in a sentence or two. He can say an awful lot. And therefore we're not going to cover everything that's in this chapter. But I do hope that we'll be able to bring out one or two things that are to our edification. And I do trust that it will be to aid our memories. Maybe for some it might be new doctrine, new truths. And if that be the case, we rejoice. Well, first of all then, what do we have in this chapter? Well, first of all, I would say to you, right at the beginning, here we have facts. Here we have facts. Now we say this because there are people who will try to tell us that what we have here is a fable. Or what we have here is a, a parable. Well, we would discount that view immediately. Here we have a piece of prose, and it's obviously a prose, it's a narrative. It's, it's a narrative of an historical event that actually happened. We don't know exactly when it happened. We are inclined to believe that it happened very close to the beginning of time. Not long after our first parents were created. Adam, as you know, was created from the dust. And his wife Eve was taken from Adam. Now these things are supernatural to us. But friends, we remind ourselves that the God with whom we have to do is supernatural. And therefore there will be things in the Bible that are beyond our comprehension and beyond our understanding. But we believe them. Why do we believe them? We believe them because it is the word of God. And as I said, we find here that what we find here gives us a credible explanation for the world as we see it today. And therefore, we are dealing with facts. Adam and Eve were real historical persons. They were, in some real sense, just like you and I. They lived. They lived their lives. They had an encounter with God. 
They had an encounter with the devil. The devil here spoke through a serpent. Now, again, this is something that we find amazing. But this is what happened. And Moses, who is the writer of this, is telling us these things. Now, Moses himself was not there. How did Moses know? Moses was given this information by inspiration. It was a revelation to him. He lived many centuries after these happenings. And he had no first-hand account of it. But God chose to reveal these things to Moses. And because Moses was a faithful servant, he faithfully wrote down what he was inspired to write. And therefore what we have here is in effect God's record of what happened. And therefore when we come to this chapter we are dealing with facts. There was a real garden, the Garden of Eden. And if you want to look at chapter 2 it will tell us about this garden. And it will tell us about the geography of it. And there was an actual locality, a place, a Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were placed. And they were there to carry out the work that God had given unto them. They were to tend to the garden, and they were given a simple command. There was a certain tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were not to eat the fruit of that tree. And all of these things are historical facts, a real garden, a real locality, real people, a real serpent who spoke. And that serpent was in some sense being used by the evil one. Now it's all very well for me to say that, but friends I have authority to say these things. Not only do we find this truth in the book of Genesis in in chapter 3, But the New Testament speaks of this event. If this was simply a fable, you wouldn't find the New Testament speaking about this event. But there are several instances in the New Testament where this event is spoken of. Let me quote one or two. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we looked at 1st and 2nd Corinthians and we noticed the the problems that Paul had. And in 2nd Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, what do we find there? Quote, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul had problems with false apostles. The false apostles were infiltrating the Corinthian congregation. And he is likening what they're doing to what Satan did to Eve. What did Satan do to Eve? She be- he beguiled her. He deceived her. And therefore he's using that historical occasion to remind them. That they're not to be like Eve. Paul again in the book of Romans. And friends if you ever want to know what the gospel's all about. And we may well look at this sometime in the future. But if you ever want to know what the Christian gospel is all about. Read the book of Romans. 
Read the book of Romans. It's not an easy book. But it will tell you the gospel. It will tell you how the gospel came about. And why it was so necessary that the Son of God had to come. And Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. There is a clear reference to what we have just read in Genesis chapter 3. Because the commandment that God gave to our parents, our first parents, was quite clear and simple. If you eat that fruit, ye shall die. If you eat that fruit, ye shall die. And this is what Paul is highlighting. He's telling us, by one man sin entered into the world. Where did sin come from? Sin came from the fact that Adam and Eve disobeyed. That's where it came from. And as a result, when sin came into the world, death came into the world. And there you can clearly see that the Apostle Paul is drawing from Genesis chapter 3. In Romans, the book of the gospel, Timothy again, or in 1st Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in 1st Timothy, quote from 2nd chapter of 1st Timothy, verses 13 and 14, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. There we have it. Adam was not deceived. He disobeyed. And he was accountable. And he was held responsible. But it was Eve that was deceived. She was deceived. And she began to eat. And then she gave the fruit to her husband. Who simply disobeyed what God had given to them in the commandment. There are other instances, friends, that we could quote. But this would remind us we're not dealing with a parable. We're not dealing with some fable that's teaching us some moral story. We are dealing with historical facts. And this will be the, the approach that we will take. We are dealing with facts that God has chosen to record for us for our edification. Well, secondly, if we have facts, we have the fall. But what we have here in Genesis chapter 3 is the saddest moment in the history of mankind. We cannot calculate the misery, the hurt, the harm. That has come upon the human race because of what our first parents did on that day. And we're inclined to believe that they disobeyed not long after they were created. But this is the saddest day of mankind. Because it records the fall. What do we mean by the fall? Well we mean quite simply that... When Adam and Eve were created, they were created holy, pure, perfect. 
We are told in Genesis chapter 1, we shall quote it later on, but chapter 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now the triune God is perfect, and therefore he made man, Adam, then Eve, perfect. They were holy, they were righteous, they were upright, they were pure. And what's more, they were able to live a perfect life. They knew no sin. And what we find here is that having been created pure, they fell. They listened to the evil one. They listened to God's arch enemy speaking through the serpent. Can you imagine it? It's difficult for us to imagine it because we're not sinless as Adam was at this time. But here we have a perfect pair enjoying wonderful fellowship, communion, harmony, peace with their creator. And suddenly the evil one comes and tempts them. This will certainly try us. This will test us. Can we understand how a, a sinless couple could fall away? How they could possibly disobey God and listen to an imposter? But that is what happened. And they fell from that glorious state that they were in. And they fell into a state of sin and misery. It's very interesting. Someone has highlighted this in verse 1, for instance. We are told that any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And then we find the serpent, Satan, speaking. Ye hath God said... And one commentator pointed out, you might need to bear with me a moment here, but one commentator pointed out that it's gone from Lord God to simply God. And he drew my attention to the fact that in chapter 2, every time God is mentioned, it is the Lord God. The Lord God. You'll see it as you go through it. It's Lord God. But when Satan begins to speak... It's not Lord God. It's simply God. Now that might be a little thing, but no, it's telling us something. Here we have an imposter. And here we have someone who wants to take over. It's not the Lord God to him. It's simply God. And our poor parents fell into the trap and they listened. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And again the commentator asks us to notice exactly what Eve said. We find in verse 2 of chapter 3. The woman said unto the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now you might think that is an accurate answer. And to some extent it is true. And it is accurate. But... It's not fulsome. It's not the answer she should have given. Because if you notice 
We didn't read it, and I'll need to highlight it to you. But if you notice what God says in chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Eve says, Oh yes, we can eat the fruit. But God said to them, You can eat every tree, from every tree apart from one. Do you see the slight difference? We may eat of the fruit. Yes, that's true. God says, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but one. And here we are inclined to believe that Eve was somewhat dissatisfied. Again, we're going into things that We cannot really comprehend. But this is what this would indicate. That even in paradise, there was something in Eve that didn't quite satisfy her. And she goes on. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, verse 3, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. This is not true. It's half true, but it's not completely true. It is true they weren't to eat of it. But there was no mention of not touching it. God never mentioned that at all. And here we have Eve adding to the word of God. What did Satan promise them? Well, basically he promised them more knowledge. More knowledge. Verse 5, Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is what he promised our first parents. And by implication he was saying, Well, God wants to hold you back. God wants to fetter you. You don't have freedom with God. It's not enough what he's given you. It's not enough that he's created a perfect environment and put you in paradise. And that you have wonderful communion and fellowship with your creator. It's not enough. God wants to hold you back and to chain you. He wants to dictate to you and rule over you and in some sense fetter you. But if you listen to me and eat of this fruit, then you'll become just like God. You'll have greater knowledge, greater freedom. You'll be able to live your lives as you want. Does this argument not surface itself and manifest itself in many lives today? How many people want to throw away the word of God, to throw away God, to banish him from the, from the public arena? Away from our nation in in any sense? Is this not what happens today? Is this not what we hear? Is this not what we think sometimes ourselves? We don't want to be fettered by God's law. Oh no, we'll make our own law. We'll live our own lives. It's my life after all. I can do as I want. This is what we find here in the Garden of Eden. And maybe this is what we find here in our building this morning. We might find rebellious people who want to live their lives 
without any reference to God, without any shackles as they see it. For them to live as God would have them to live, why that is to be under the thraldom of our Creator. And we want to break away from this. And this very often happens. The preacher can remember it himself, and I'm sure there's others in the midst who can remember that time themselves when they when they grew up, as they said, as as they thought, and when they came to an age of discretion, when they had more freedom over their lives, did they not say to themselves, Well, we're not going to bother with God and his restrictions. We're going to live life to the full. This is the kind of mentality that was here. But you know, friends, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And they found that out very quickly. She was deceived. She took the fruit. Adam was with her. He ate. Things changed immediately. The moment they took that fruit, they died. Oh, they didn't die physically. They went on to live for a considerable amount of time after that. But they died in another sense immediately. In what sense? In a spiritual sense. They were separated from God. That relationship that we have spoken about earlier was immediately broken. There was a chasm between the living God, their creator, and the creature. That's why they went and hid, which we will speak about later on. That's the fall. And the consequences that resulted, friends, are horrendous. And we live in this world today because of the fall. And we can see its effects all around us. We can see it. We can see it in our own hearts. We don't like to be reminded of it. But we are born sinners. We are shapen in iniquity. Oh, the modern man will recoil against this. He does not like to be told these things. He likes to think that there's something good in him. There's nothing good in us, friends, by nature. We are sinners by nature, and it does not take long for that sinful nature to manifest itself in sinful acts. We have sinful natures, all of us. That's why we sin. We don't sin and then become sinners. We sin because we have a sinful nature. Where did we get the sinful nature from? We got it from our first parents. You see, Adam was our representative. He was what we call our federal head. He represented the whole of humanity. And when he fell, the whole of humanity fell with him. That's why initially God addressed Adam first. Adam was the federal head. 
He was the one who must bear the responsibility. He should have told his wife not to do this. He didn't. And therefore he's the one who's addressed first because he is the one who represents the whole of humanity. Now we might not think that's very fair. This is something that people say. Now, surely this is not fair. Why should I be held responsible for the actions of Adam who lived hundreds and thousands of years before me? Well, it is consistent with the affairs of this world. Let us put it very, very simply. A parent or parents... They might live sinful lives. They might get involved in uncleanness. They might be involved in drunkenness. They might be involved in drug taking. Or they could be involved in any other kind of sinful activity. They could be robbers and criminals. They have children. Do not their children suffer because of the actions of their parents? Oh, the children are not punished because of the actions of their parents. But nevertheless, the children are affected by the lives of their parents. So it is here. Furthermore, we would say to those who say it's not fair, Adam represented the whole of mankind. And had we been there ourselves we would have done exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. They couldn't stand up to temptation. They couldn't stand up to the temptation of the devil. And that's why we are born with sinful natures. Adam's sin, the guilt of it, is imputed to his posterity. Christ only accepted. Now here we have Adam and Eve, the fallen, that relationship, that communion is broken. It's not what it was. And many people then think then, well, they're not the same as they were and they don't have the image of God as they once had. Well, that's true to a certain extent, but we must be careful. We've already quoted from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it tells us, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And they made Adam and Eve. What happened? Well, what happened after the fall? We are told in Genesis chapter 5, for instance, in verse 3, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. So, those who came from the loins of Adam were in his own likeness after his image. And that would tell us they were sinful like himself. But, Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 tells us something else also that's important for us to consider. 
This is a verse that is spoken to Noah after the end of the flood and the waters had cleared and God had made a covenant with Noah and he was telling Noah how he was to be, behave himself in the new world. And he's telling Noah that if a man commits murder, the murderer is to be put to death. Why? Because Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God made he man. And therefore we come to the point where we are today. We are not like Adam in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. We are like what the Bible describes in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. We are still made in the image of God and we have the image of Adam also. That's where we are. And this would tell us that the the image of God in every single one of us is marred. It is scarred. It is soiled. It's not what it was. In some sense, it reflects the image of Adam and the image of fallen Adam. The point the minister wants to establish, friends, is that in some real sense, we are still in the image of God. Marred and scarred and not what it should be, of course. But nevertheless, this is what happened as a result of the fall. That image has been tarnished. It's not what it was. And we can see the effects. We can see the effects in ourselves, in our homes, our families, our communities, our nations. Why is there, why is there wars? Why is there fightings? Why is it one nation rises up against another nation? We're all one family. We're all one we're all human beings. We've all come from Adam and Eve. Why is it there's so much fighting, so much turmoil? Why is there real wars and cold wars? And why is there bickering and fighting between nations? It's all down to what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. Friends, why is there sickness? Why is there suffering? Why is there disease? Why is there tears in everyone's eyes? And why is there heartbreak in homes and families? Why is there death? Why are our graves full and our hospitals full? Our hospices full? Our prisons full? It's all down to the fact that we're sinners. And the whole of creation has been affected. Why is it that nature is red in tooth and in claw? Why is the is it the animals tear at each other and eat each other alive? It's all because of sin. Why do we have weeds and thistles and thorns and tsunamis and floods and famines, earthquakes? All of 
these things are telling us and pointing to the fact that what happened on that day is affecting us today. This is what it's all about. And when you have tears and when you have heartache and when you have bitterness in your families and when siblings rise up against siblings and when parents are against the children, it's all because of sin. You know, these people thought that they would have a greater amount of knowledge. What knowledge did they get? They began to know evil. Evil. That's the knowledge they got. Well, secondly, the fall. Thirdly, we have fear. Verses 8 and 9. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God spoke to him, I heard the voice. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid. This is one reason why... Our churches are virtually empty today. They fear God. Oh, they don't fear Him in the sense they should fear Him. But they don't want to hear about God. They don't want to hear what the minister is trying to expound here. They don't want to come into a place that will tell them about a sin-hating holy God that they have to do with. That's why they hide. This is what our first parents did. We cannot comprehend it, but they, they love to hear the voice of uh, their God moving in the cool of the evening before the fall. They love to have fellowship with their God. They look forward to it. But when sin entered into their existence, that then changed. It was the fear of punishment. And maybe there are some here even who will fall into that category. Why have you got this fear? You've got this fear because you have a guilty conscience. Why do you have a guilty conscience? Because your relationship with God is not what it should be. Sin is the barrier. It's what's blocking that relationship. This is what our first parents found out. Oh, they would love to turn the clock back, but they couldn't. You know, people talk about this and they make light of it and they say, Oh, this was just a small matter, was it not? To eat some forbidden fruit, surely it's an overreaction on the part of God. How foolish even to think like that. Because as far as God was concerned, it was a terrible crime. And what's more, as far as our parents were concerned, as far as Adam and Eve were concerned, this was no light matter. They hid from the Lord their God. God did not hide from them, but they hid from him. Therefore, it's obvious that to them, it was not a light matter. 
And your sin is not a light matter. Oh, you might go home and you might immerse yourself in the things of time. You might try to erase these things. You might feel the word of God is speaking to you and you don't want to be confronted with it. And you might do whatever you can to silence your conscience. But this is a serious matter and you must deal with it. And this was not a little sin. No, this was a great sin. It was a great sin principally because they sinned against an infinite holy God. They didn't sin against someone like themselves. This was against God Almighty. This was the highest act of treason that anyone could possibly commit. They rebelled against a loving God who had provided a perfect environment for them. In one real way, the whole of the earth was created for them to enjoy it. And they were given dominion over everything in the earth. It was for them. And they showed their love. He had provided amply for them. They turned and rebelled against him. He had given them a, one simple, clear commandment. There was nothing difficult in this commandment. Don't eat that fruit. They had the power not to sin. They choose not to use that power. Well, very briefly, fourthly, and lastly, we have here the future. Where do we find it? We find it in the promise. Verse 15. Here God is speaking to Satan. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We're not going to spend long on this. We may well return to it. But this, friends, is the first gospel promise. It's a promise of the Messiah. It's a promise of the coming of that great day when the Son of God would take flesh and he would live among us and he would live a perfect life and that he would go to Calvary and there he would offer up himself that once for all perfect sacrifice and there on the cross of Calvary he would defeat the devil. That's what's in that promise. The first promise, and as you go through the Old Testament, you find that promise being enlarged, made more clear to the people. It's only hinted here, but as you go through the Old Testament until the time of the fulfillment, it's a promise of a deliverer. It's a promise of a Savior. And that Savior is the Son of God. That's the future. Sin is so great in the sense that it's so evil and so powerful 
that we cannot deal with it ourselves. And surely this is the first step on our road of grace. Oh, that we might come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might cast ourselves upon him, that we would believe upon him, that we would recognize how powerless we are to deal with our sin and cast ourselves at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that great one who fulfilled that promise. Here we have then, friends, the fall of man. And we are not divorced or detached from it. It has affected us all, everyone. And only Christ can redeem us and save us. Amen.